0: So tell me what you've been working
1: on. At VSC, well, I only have two weeks. Okay. So it's it's maybe more modest than some of these other people who are um, doing unbelievable epic works. Uh, I started uh, working on a new essay for a monthly update letter about my transition. They're called the Diana Updates. Right now, they're personal letters. But they're emailed to about 160 people across the country who I love and I mostly don't live near and who want to hear how I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I've been limiting myself to a thousand words. And so in the beginning, I worked on update number 10. And the writers on this list of people I've mailed to, they know, they all know it's more than just a letter. So uh, so this is my kind of unusual nonfiction prose projects and uh, I put a lot into those. I was really happy to get a letter done in that beautiful studio right on the river. Then after that I started working on um, some poems, um, a couple poems for my notebook, writing some new poems. I've been writing here, I've been writing in this little cafe in Morrisville called The Bee's Knees. Oh, nice wherever I can have some good luck so mostly I'm just drafting new things and the third thing I'm doing is um, kind of like the business of poetry when I get back to New York in a few days uh, I'm gonna have to um, send out notices about a workshop and uh, unlike a lot of writers I'm not employed by a university uh, I'm self-employed itinerant teacher so I've actually confessed to doing some poetry biz while I've been here Anyway, between those three things, it's been a pretty busy time.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Tell me about, with the new work, did you read any of the new pieces at the poetry reading?
1: I came close to reading one of the new pieces. I have a new piece, I think it's just called Practice and Theory, hmm. about a time where I did a full bow in front of my father. And it was very interesting what happened after.
0: A full bow, like...
1: I did a bow. At the time, um, in college, I, I had not an easy relationship with my father, to say the least, but I had taken a course in Zen practice and theory. We did 108 bows every morning. So I was showing him a bow, and I did a full bow all the way to the floor. I touched my forehead to the floor, and then I got up. And then what he did after that was remarkable. So I came close to reading that, but I know too much. About how long it takes to really close the door on a poem. Mm-hmm. And uh, readings are indelible. They stay around forever. So I did read two new poems, but they weren't that new. So maybe I was breaking the spirit of the readings. I apologize.
0: No, not at all. I was just wondering if, uh, if part of that voice was, was in there. It was a remarkable reading. So I oh, think there you. was yeah, no, no apologies needed. I think people read from yeah. new work, old work.
1: I mean, I often hit a voice that is um very tender, very naked um, and I'm not sure if people would have known it. The four poems I chose were much more mischievous poems uh that I chose to read uh, the two from nameless boy um, and then two two newer ones and uh Two were written before I started transitioning. And um, I think maybe they're about transitioning, but I didn't know it. And then the other two were written, you know, once I knew I was going to transition, you know, my gender. So there are two Doug poems and then two Diana poems. And what I have found is that as a man, I wrote these all-out, balls-to-the-wall love poems about women and as a woman i write heartbreaking love poems about women <laughs> so there you go
0: you are yourself
1: you yourself a bunch of people in my life think i'm going to write different in a dress no no
0: no it's still going to be your work
1: it's my work if there's no gender
0: Um, last question, you had mentioned about the bow and about the Zen practice and I know you're here um, as a Hamera fellow, do you want to talk at all about being here as a a meditation facilitator?
1: Mm. yeah I'm actually not a Hamera fellow, the fellows there are six fellows in this two-week period at the Vermont uh, Studio Center and those are people who are funded who won um, this fellowship uh, 12 people together out of somehow 270 applications, remarkable artists, all of whom have a contemplative practice. I was hired to come here and be a meditation instructor support for the Himera fellows. So Himera's employing me, but um, uh, I didn't go through the process and I wasn't anointed a fellow. I'm just here to support them. Um, so yeah, it's an interesting role. Uh, I normally don't don't come to writers colonies because I I do pretty well in my apartment Mm -hmm. although I might want to come to some writers (laughs) colonies now it's really nice here and the food is good
0: Uh, and how does just one quick follow-up does your practice inform your writing
1: yeah yeah it does Um, it's a hard thing to describe quickly but um, meditation is all about space and the awareness of space and poetry is all about space and the awareness of space. Um, You look at a poem on a page something's happening with space Um, and then of course a poem is carved out of silence. You know poems are remarkable for for really what they don't say, the drafts that the audience didn't know, the choices of what not to say I think it was Robert Frost who said, "In the end, we become known by where we stopped short." You know, it's a lot about space, and I'm sure every every art genre has an equivalent of 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 you know what it would mean to work with space, uh, to work with silence, and then once you have that kind of silence, what kind of energy finally are you going to put into this space? Versus um, what doesn't need to be there. So, I could say more, but maybe that's enough.
0: Oh, that is enough. Perfect. Thank you.
1: You're very welcome. Good evening. I thought I'd start with a poem about painting. Sort of. Mexico all these people going to Mexico and not coming back you only hear about them on Facebook or in blogs because they're in Mexico. Some of them try to get you to come down there and hang with them as though Mexico were some kind of cult they joined, though perhaps they're just lonely, though not lonely enough to come back from Mexico. Yet some reappear temporarily, like people stepping out of a rave for a water break. You notice their hair matted into dreads and their eyes glazed, more of their whites showing, giving them a surprised, blown-out, spooky, calm look. They never talk about what they do in Mexico. It is as though the space below the border were a narrative black hole from which no linear story can escape. Except those of the brilliant Cormac McCarthy, who is from East Tennessee, a black hole of a different sort. I hope I haven't offended anyone here. I suppose this little riff on Mexico could seem a tad ignorant, though we know the real Mexico has nothing to do with anything I say. I just set out to say Mexico a lot. Seriously, that's it everyone gets so hung up on words on account of them having meanings, but do they? If this were music and instead of Mexico I wrote an E flat for the horn section, could anyone possibly have a problemo with that? Or if this were a painting and Mexico were just a kind of brush stroke. I was trying a blob of magenta smeared across a canvas. Who would take umbrage at that, even if Andy Warhol painted it? Although, knowing Warhol, that magenta smear would be Richard Nixon's lipstick. I wouldn't mind going to Mexico myself, rent a big place on the outskirts of a town named after a saint get to know the villagers, figure out the drinking water situation, how to steer clear of local justice, how much Spanish it takes to get a woman. Then I'd invite you down to join me. you got to come to Mexico, I'd say. Though I wouldn't say much else, just that it was some place quiet and amazingly inexpensive, where you sleep a lot and wear the same pants for days, a place from which no news gets out, even if it tried, a place you thought was only in your mind. So uh, I'll read uh, one other poem from this book and then a couple new ones. Um, so I like to do a lot of different kinds of poems. One of the kinds of poems I'm doing a lot in this book are what I call bullshit poems. Uh, people, the person has no idea what they're saying, but you know they just go off and say it like people do. So this is called Today's World. Just now, I thought of wainscoting. I thought, well, there's something we don't normally think about. Go ahead, click on your 900 satellite channels, see if anything breathes the word. Surely there was a day when wainscoting was all the rage. It might have been in the time of Charlotte Bronte or William Makepeace Thackeray. I haven't read any of their novels, but I'd be surprised if they didn't make it a point to include wainscoting or a conspicuous lack thereof in their voluminous descriptions of interiors, rooms where young governesses in layers of skirts sit quietly waiting, thinking of seaside summers of their youth, then suddenly paling at the prospect of spinsterhood, years of muted light staring at wainscoting. the wainscoting. I don't actually know what wainscoting is, not technically. I could sit here and bullshit you, or I could look it up on the internet, but that's not the point. The point is, once there was a world before wainscoting, a barbaric place, though not, I imagine, without a certain raw beauty, followed by a transitional period, an age of incipient wainscotting, as it were, marked by the usual stumbles and false steps, giving way to the tastefully wainscotted milieu of Charlotte Bronte and William Makepeace Thackeray, which brings us to today's world of zip drives and smoothies and people from sector six. Now you can get replacement applicator tips at Bed Bath and Beyond. Or boot shapers, keep your favorite boots from sagging, but you can no longer find wainscoting. At least, I don't think you can. <laughs> so, um, I was friends with the late, great William Zinser, uh, who died this past, I think it was May, and uh, three years before he died, uh, he went blind and he called me on the phone and said, could you teach me to write poetry? And he's known as a prose writer and uh, so every Thursday I came over to teach poetry lessons to William Zinser and I was exposed to a lexicon that I admired and you can't just use someone else's words. So maybe this poem is for him. It's called Fedora. Sometimes You hear a person use a word, such as vex, which causes you to say to yourself, now there's a kick-ass verb, and then ask, why don't I say stuff like that? But instead of raising up your diction, you're consumed with regret. How this man spent all these years sublimely vexed while you were more prosaically pissed off. (laughs) It's like those times you made a resolution to upgrade your wardrobe, sensing time itself slipping by. But still, you failed to live your days in blazers and good shoes and vests. Imagine the opportunities the women who might have come over to you smiling, twirling their hair had you had on a vest. And imagine if you'd found a few more people feckless instead of settling for assholes. (laughs) Though at this point, you may never know why you've gone with schmoes and not Galahads, which is a lot like dragging yourself around in dungarees and t-shirts, looking like a guy someone tries to shoo from a photo they're taking of someone else in a fedora. Though if you were a fedora, they might say, hey, how about getting in this photo? But here's the thing. You've got a fedora, two of them, high up in your closet, yet you never wear them. Maybe that poem isn't about William Zinzer. <laughs> so I'll just close with one other poem. Um, it's called Whole Lot of Love, and it's after the song that you know about. If you're ever in a fight with someone you love, each of you holding the pistol of your dignity to the other's temple despite, or maybe because of, the width and breadth of that love, which has you pretty sure you've been mistaken for her father. While she's fairly certain she's again found someone like her mother. So she's haunted by her blindness, and you're sick of her projections. And just as someone's about to say the next perfect thing, perfect for deepening this unfathomable trench, it might be a good time to get up and leave saying, I need to check on the cornbread. (laughs) It would be an even better move if there actually were some cornbread in the oven, the rooms beginning to fill with its aroma. Also good if you yourself baked it just 15 minutes ago in that lost era of her leaning against the kitchen wall calling the recipe from the back of the bag, and you pulling the flour, the sugar, the salt, the baking powder, down from the cabinets, ingredients that had lain dormant for years, like locusts in the ground, now come to life with a couple of eggs and some milk, the batter already rising in the bowl. And it would be especially good if the idea had come in a lull when nothing in the world seemed edible. Good for it to be ex nihilo, like a flash flood or a zeppelin tune starting up from some garage nearby, yet strangely unlocatable, which is where love comes from and where it can go in the space of a minute. A shadow comes over and someone frowns. Someone cocks their head. Someone snorts in exasperation when someone leaves the room, saying, I need to check on the cornbread. But then, when you bring it, sliced, steaming, buttered, who can resist? Not you, not her. Thank you.